right, what's going on, guys? Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Today we've got an awesome episode because today we're talking with Broderick Chavez. Now, Broderick is going to be chatting with us about the role of hormones with diet and training. So, Broderick, why don't you, uh, first off, thanks for, for jumping on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us. Um, why don't you introduce yourself, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, kind of what you've been doing. Ah, uh, this is the part, all the rest of this is easy for me. This is the part that's hard for me. I'm very, very poor at uh, even explaining myself. Um, as Daniel said, name's Broderick Chavez, B. Chavez, oftentimes you'll hear. Um, I am at this point in my life and career a post-competitive athlete. I was a very uh, competitive, powerlifting, strongman, uh, Highland Games, strength, strength sports, etc. Bodybuilding in my teens. Um, essentially since the beginning of my competitive era, um, I was simultaneously slowly dipping my toes into the coaching world, uh, pursued uh, education in biology and chemistry. Uh, so between my slightly off-center psychology, my education, and my competitive environment, I basically became uh, one of the uh, I don't, I, don't, I don't like the word guru because I really don't think of myself that way in any way, shape, or form, but I think it's a word the industry would recognize, and I've kind of become one of the drugs slash training slash nutrition slash integrate all of those things, uh, coach guru type people, um, a little less um, commercially than most. Uh, I've worked with a lot, a lot of athletes that you know I have agreements or at least wink and a nudge agreements where we don't talk about one another. So um, I've been far more active than kind of the, the ether or internet ether would allow you to uh, immediately assume, but that, that's roughly who I am. I've spent my entire life pursuing how to um, get the most out of the least with the highest level of safety when it comes to you know, performance enhancing drugs and their integration into sports at large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you even uh, done a fair bit of consulting for for individuals like stepping on the stage at the highest level, so like Mr. Olympia and, and really elite level powerlifting as well, haven't you? Yes, yeah, all, all of the your top powerlifting, pro raw, big dogs, all of that sort of stuff. I've worked with athletes of that caliber, bodybuilding um, worldwide. You know, in in the U.S., you pretty much just think the Olympia, but there are there are high level bodybuilding contests all over the world, and I have mm-hmm. worked with athletes at that level, uh, athletes that have placed in the top five at the Olympia, both male and female. Um, you know, I have our uh, NPC, uh, uh, NABA, you know, athletes all, all over the globe, that sort of thing. So yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And woo, you shouldn't say this out loud because WADA's involved, but I've helped mm-hmm. the Olympic caliber athletes that have actually competed in the Olympic games. Yeah, that's something that's sort of like, that's a whole nother conversation. We don't necessarily need to even get into that because I feel like 100%. That, that's, that's, that's going to turn into its own episode eventually, probably. Um, so I guess why don't we start out with, you know, the f- first question would be, what, what actually is the role of like estrogen and testosterone as it relates to like hypertrophy and, and strength particularly? Well, I, I, think I, would, I would think I would actually start the conversation one step before that, just as a very brief preamble. Mm-hmm. Testosterone and estrogen fall under the category of steroids, hormones, most specifically sex hormones. They are the chemical messengers that differentiate 
essentially a blank template, which is a prepubescent child and directs them into the pubescent lane that they're going to become. Obviously boys become men, girls become women. That's obvious, but the, the, the chemical signal which triggers those developmental changes are said testosterone and estrogen. Uh, again, just for a little pinch of language, not to drag this on, but just to really set the stage, testosterone is medically and pharmacologically uh, not an anabolic steroid, by the way. It is a steroid of the variety androgen. Androgen is Latin Greek for that which makes male. Estrogen is literally the polar opposite of that. Latin Greek translation, that which makes female. Okay. Mm -hmm. Structurally, they are very, 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 very similar to the point where if I drew them out in you know the chemistry Steran style, it would take a minute to actually identify that there is a difference in which one's which. So they're very, very similar based on the same root structure, which is cholesterol. Um, so that's the that's kind of what they do in nature is they take a blank template, a certain gene trigger kicks in, and there becomes an overproduction of one or the other. And in some cases, it's one to the other, but that's complicated we don't need to go into and then they turn essentially like i said a blank template into a male or a female adult the the interesting thing is they have very very crossed over roles in men estrogen plays a role in many many biological performance aspects ranging from libido sex drive sexual performance to actual re muscle remodeling actual anabolism and then the opposite is true in women. Estrogen plays a very vital role in the development and maintenance of femininity, but then also so does testosterone and assorted androgens accessorize or augment the building of muscle and what have you in women. So it's not a either or, it's a majority plus minority scenario in both cases. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing the, the meat of this conversation is, is targeted toward men, so I'll stick mostly to that concept of men testosterone is the major and endogenous hormone there could be secondary uh, anabolic steroids applied but then there's also estrogen the first thing we probably want to cover is where estrogen comes from in men and comically it comes from testosterone your body takes cholesterol does some things to it makes uh pregnenolone dhea a whole bunch of things finally um testosterone. Testosterone enters the bloodstream and then an enzyme actually produced in fat cells, in adipose cells, adipocytes, uh, called the aromatase enzyme, moves forth into the blood, finds testosterone, and performs a process called aromatization, which is basically just a mild alteration of testosterone into estrogen. So to some degree, there is sort of a, a, a series of events or a cascade where it's you know, cholesterol to these other things to testosterone to an amount of estrogen. So your body, to a large degree, tries to auto-regulate the volume of testosterone to estrogen to make things optimal to what it believes is correct, which isn't always what we want for athletics. Mm -hmm. Is that so far reasonable uh, synopsis? Yeah. No, no, 100%. So j just a quick segue. You mentioned a, mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting things in there. Um, one question I do have is, what sort of impact does body fat percentage have on aromatization? So the conversion of like testosterone into estrogen. I am of the minority uh, in that I believe, well, first of all, let, let me say something more relevant before that. First of all, it, it's a very 
well-established medical and scientific fact that it plays a role. That's, mm -hmm. that's not arguable. Okay. The aromatase enzyme is produced in fat cells. The fatter you are, the greater the reservoir of that you have and vice versa. Mm -hmm. that, that's essentially a, a, an immutable fact. Now, most exercise physiologists, dietitians, et cetera, kind of write that off as not being enormously influential in the big picture. I disagree. Mm -hmm. I believe that leaner people tend to maintain more uh, favorable hormone balances. I look at blood work all day long. Admittedly, a very high percentage of that is uh, drug-induced. But the point is, whether it's drug-induced or an outcome created in nature, at the end of the day, I'm just looking at the end of the same bell curve that exists in nature. And my experience is, yes, the leaner the athlete, the lower the conversion to testosterone, therefore the more favorable androgen to estrogen ratio that athlete has, therefore the easier it is to maintain leanness and the easier it is to avoid feministic side effects brought on by the overproduction of estrogen. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's always one of those things where it's kind of like this little bit of a nebulous subject because, I mean, you can't, I don't know how ethical it would be to like induce aromatization in a bunch of men anyways, right? So uh, a lot well, of it is, is going to be more so that. based on. You say that, but actually that, now you're not in a designed intended study, yeah, but yeah. we actually see that cropping up in, for instance, um, chronic cannabis users tend to have higher body fat percentages and therefore consequently have poorer androgen estrogen ratios. I mean, we've, we've identified that, I, albeit it's via a meta-analysis style, but we've, yeah. we've identified that even in um, scenarios where people have low T, they're not necessarily hyper-estrogenic, but the ratio between testosterone and estrogen closes mm. and body fat values go up and it's harder to bring them down. Right. No, no, no. So I, <clears throat> I meant kind of on, on the flip side of things, right? Like in terms of, you know, sort of validating the magnitude of impact that, that it would have. Right. I, yes. Like it, it seems like there's, you know, there's obviously practical limitations, especially when you're studying hormones and things like that. Like you can't, you can't really like sleep restrict a lot of people beyond a certain point or else it's like, Oh, right. you might kill them. I don't know if people are gonna be too happy. And, yep. you know, so there's definitely a couple of limitations. And I think that a lot of the times in, in situations like that, sometimes what you can turn to, you know, at least for some, potentially a little bit more like nuanced insight is, is, you know, or are individuals like yourself where this is what you do. You work with the guys every day and mm -hmm. it's like, okay, sure. It's not, you know, an RCT or anything like that. But at the same time, I definitely still put, you know, long-term anecdotal experience from, from a high level coach on a, in a pretty high regard. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing, and, you know, I, I don't want to put myself above any, you know, um, you know, pedigreed intellectual researcher, because I, I really mm -hmm. don't want that position, even if it was due me, I, I don't, but I see that even intra-athlete. I see, for instance, athlete X at 15% body fat with a, mm -hmm. a, a diet, if you will, of a thousand milligrams of androgens, okay? And I see blood plasma testosterone, and I see blood plasma estrogen. I take that same athlete and slowly diet them toward sub 10% body fat levels, I see the testosterone come down a little bit, but I see the estrogen go down rather a lot. 
and they mm -hmm. actually wind up with a greater gap between testosterone and estrogen values or ratios, despite no other change but calorie restriction and suppression of adipose tissue. That's interesting. So then, then in that case, what sort of uh, impact does like diet and exercise have on, on hormone values? Like both, both from like a, a caloric intake and also a diet composition standpoint. Well, here's the part about it. Uh, enormous impact. It is in, in you know outside of it. It is what in nature um, the the annual the diurnal in, and and annual cycle of things has an enormous impact on hormone values. Um, just again, just to give you kind of that broad. And again, I didn't mention this in the opening, but I, I am a biologist by trade. So a lot of times I'll I'll use metaphors and analogies predicated on just what's happening out in my yard because that is where my mind is. Um, for instance, let's look at the yearly cycle of plant growth to animal growth and reproduction. You have a season where it's winter, comes into spring, plant life comes into proliferation. The animals, which are very underfed, overstressed, begin to graze and eat. So they eat and essentially fatten and gain health through the season, mate, spawn at the end of the season, Coincidentally, when nature generates fruit, fruit, apples, you know, name, you know, you, you understand what fruit is. Coincidentally, is called fruit. Well, the other way around, really. Fructose is called fructose because it's found in fruit. Fructose has a tendency to be biologically preferentially stored as fat. So these animals literally get to eat, get healthy, mate, reproduce. And then at the end of the season, there's this lovely bolus of lipogenic foodstuffs to literally fatten them up to enter into the new season, which is going to be winter suppressed food values. They live on the adipose through the winter, cycle begins again. So it's comically natural in that nature and the way animals live in nature are meshed. Now, my point is this, all of those things we just talked about are driven by hormonal changes triggered by the environment. The proliferation of food means eating. Eating means an elevation in insulin because that's the response to food. As insulin goes up, binding proteins go down, meaning androgens, testosterone or estrogen, depending on the, the, the species of the creature, um, the gender, I'm, I'm sorry, I said species, the, depending on the gender of the creature, then free hormone values go up. That's largely what triggers the mating. So literally the presence of food precipitates the mating season, which precipitates the gestation, the, the offspring, and then the gorging on the fruit. Again, insulin powered, insulin stores the fat. So all of these things ranging from, you know, sexual activity to body fat to body composition are all powered by nature and the mediator in that nature is hormone values. Now that's a, that's a very natural overview, but we can take as, as you know, Western world, you know, upright Pythagans, we could take and choose from that and choose to exacerbate or suppress those values and behaviors in ourselves to get athletic outcomes. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And so, 
Um, in kind of following up on that then, is, is there any specific benefit uh, to one macronutrient sort of prioritizing a certain macronutrient distribution? I, I know there's a lot of uh, people who talk about like, oh, this diet's so great and these testosterone boosting foods. And that, that always kind of bugs me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because of like the, the transient nature of all these potential you know, right. benefits and stuff like that. So can you kind of speak to that? I, I can, um, and I'm going to do it in reverse order of importance. Mm -hmm. Starting with fats, fats have a certain value in that there is a very small but real medical biological requisite for fatty acids. You have a fat requirement where if you do not reach it, you know, starvation, you will eventually die of fatty acid depletion that that's real but it's also a fucking ferociously offendingly small value i mean it, it's it's obscene i mean you know humans can live on literally like 10 grams of fat a day for really extended periods of time it's a very small amount but it is not zero and it is relevant but by and large it's hard to eat any measurable amount of food and not get that amount of fat so, like I said, it's not zero, but it's also not very relevant. Moving up to protein, we have the same thing. Protein is an absolute requirement. Literally, again, going back to the Latin Greek translation, protein literally means of most importance in that without it, you fucking die. So, again, no real argument for me there. Where the argument comes in is exactly what that value is and, especially speaking to sports-minded people, is there any value in getting more than the requirement? On both points, I would say the requirement isn't as high as most people want to believe it is, probably not quite as low as the, say the RDAs, but not nearly as high as most bodybuilders and powerlifters think it is. And secondly, I just cannot find for any reason a benefit of consuming protein above that value. And I'll explain why in a second when I tackle the third major macronutrient. But and again, you didn't ask, but just for the sake of, you know, this is me pontificating. I would say were I designing, designing a diet for the above average, average gym goer, I would say between 0.5 and one grams per kilogram of body weight in terms of dietary fat. So get on a scale, you weigh hundred kilos, consume between 50 and hundred grams of fat, 100, the absolute maximum, 50, the absolute minimum done. Yes, I believe that that much variance is acceptable. Protein, I typically suggest two to three grams per kilogram. Those numbers come via Lyle McDonald's protein book rather than you know me drone on about it for hours. Pay 20 bucks, buy his book, it's worth it. Um, so again, get on scale, you weigh 100 kilos, multiply that by two, two to three, let's shoot the middle, say 2.5. So 250 grams of protein, 50 to 100 grams of fat. That leaves one and one only remaining macronutrient, and that's carbohydrates. And this is why I personally choose to focus on carbohydrates. Now, at, before I say anything, let me predicate that I deal with athletes, and not just athletes, but typically very above average athletes. So everything I'm saying is relatively niche, but applies to everyone just at a perhaps slower, lower, you know, bell curve. Mm -hmm. Of the three macronutrients, if you eat fat, you relatively speaking, get no hormonal response. 
certainly not an acute one. And if there's a, if there is a chronic one, it's very minor and it's niche hormones like say leptin, ghrelin, things of that nature. It's not, you know, testosterone, estrogen, none. Mm -hmm. Same thing with protein. There's a minor argument that chronic, you know, elevated protein values can have very nominal impacts on ambient androgen levels, but it's, it's not well-defined. And if it, if it is, it's not significant. However, Everyone in listening to this conversation is at least passingly familiar with the horrible and you know, scourge-like medical condition, diabetes mellitus. Okay. When you eat carbohydrates, there is a measurable, acute, and also potentially chronic elevation in a very significant metabolic hormone, i.e. insulin. Most people demonize insulin. I do not in any way, shape, or form. Insulin is when we talked that earlier, one of the reasons I led you through that conversation about the animals and the, the fruit and the mating is one of the major drivers in that cycle is insulin. Insulin triggers the suppression of binding globulins, which allows greater free hormone values. It triggers anti-catabolism and potentially the storage of body fat, but that's also a storage in any variety is ultimately anabolic. Now through good behaviors and good food selections and weight training and all sorts of other things, you can vector that energy partitioning slightly different than nature would allow it. As I said, you can cleverly extract pieces of these ideas and apply them as you choose. But moral of the story is, out of all the three things you can eat, only carbohydrates generates a real, tangible, measurable hormonal response. I say, whenever possible, if you're gonna get some free hormones, take them. Mm -hmm. you know, rather than having to buy them and take them. So um, I would design a diet in that way, 0.5 to 1 yeah. grams of fat, 2 to 3 grams of, per nitrogen, and all of the rest of your remaining calories via the vector of relatively lean, relatively unrefined carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that seems to be, I think, what most people agree as far as like uh, kind of the priority hierarchy of, of macronutrients. So. Yeah, and, and I mean like even like you said, a lot of people bastardize or, or like demonize um, insulin, but I mean, insulin is, is, you know, independently anabolic and, and 100%. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, Oh, I don't want insulin because it's going to do all these bad things to me. And it's like, mm, I don't know. Then why are bodybuilders injecting this crap into their body? It seems like, I know that's not obviously like a foolproof analogy, but I mean, it's like, no, but to, to, you can't, you to, can't to just say that there's nothing there. Right. And to put a rider on that, the people that demonize insulin, oh, insulin's the thing that's making you fat. That would lead one to the conclusion that, well, being diabetic, you should be really, really thin. I mean, yeah. if, if diabetes is the condition where you don't produce insulin and insulin is the thing making you fat, you would expect to find a really emaciated, you know, trim <laughs> demographic out there somewhere. <laughs> and, and they don't exist. Yeah, it's like it's self-curing disease. You would think to a degree, yeah. but yet it doesn't play out that way, which leads me to believe that maybe there's some flaws in that logic. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, it kind of is on like, on par with those, uh, well, gorillas are vegan, and they're jacked, <laughs> and you're like, hmm, yeah. are you a gorilla? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, that, right. that, there, there's a lot of those kinds of silly, yeah. silly arguments. Um, yeah, no, def definitely is. Um, so what, what is the difference between like free values of, of hormones and, and bound? Like, 
how does that sort of impact individuals? And, and I mean, is that even really relevant? I know it's something a lot of people are kind of confused about. It's relevant acutely. It is not relevant chronically. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, for instance, the example I gave where if food values suddenly go up, insulin values mm-hmm. suddenly go up, and that relatively acutely suppresses binding globulins, which releases more free hormone. Now, the key is that hormone has always been there. The, 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 again, from an analogy point of view, for people that lack maybe acumen in you know, life sciences or even chemistry, think of binding globulins as nothing more than balls of sticky tape tumbling around in the bloodstream, and they collect, just like a ball of sticky tape will collect lint. It collects, and in this case, the thing that has affinity to it or that sticks to it is testosterone. So it's tumbling around in the blood, just collecting testosterone and keeping it in that ball and preventing it from going wherever it's trying to go, trying, it's not really conscious, but where where it would otherwise go. So it's really nothing more than a time release mechanism. So that's super important because it's a time release mechanism, meaning given enough time, it will decay and release that testosterone anyway. It's not as if once it's bound up to the globulin, it's gone down some fucking you know, mystical drain hole and you never see it again. That's not it. It's just literally there for the purpose of keeping levels very low, very even, and a smooth bell curve. The sudden presence or removal of insulin can cause a sudden elevation or suppression of the globulin, changing ambient values, which is why it's relevant in, say, driving mating cycles and that sort of thing. In humans, Western world humans specifically, where food is very, very plentiful and very, very pervasive and even seasonally, um, binding globulins are actually a lot less relevant to us than they ever were in our you know, natural environments. But the short answer is it really doesn't have anything to do with anything other than acute releases or, or lack of acute releases of the sex hormones that have already been manufactured. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so I guess to kind of piggyback on that, how, I know a lot of the times people are really worried about their hormone values. They're like, oh yeah, I think I have like metabolic damage. I think I have this. I think I have low test. I think I have all these things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but at least from my understanding, hormone regulation is an extremely tightly regulated system. And, and so I'm just wondering like how, how common is hormonal dysregulation? Because everything that I've found on it seems to suggest that it's quite rare outside of like a metabolic you know condition but i'm just wondering like if you've seen anything well, i i think the problem there is i think there's a lack of uh common language right. you and i speak of dysregulation we're talking about illness we're talking about you know a, a an organ or a system is not working properly some feedback loop is not working properly there's a gene problem and we're not getting proper enzyme expression we're talking about a medical condition I think when most people use that language, really what they're saying is, I'm old, I'm fat, I'm lazy, I'm something, and I'm not particularly pleased with my X, Y, or Z value. Mm -hmm. I have lower testosterone than I would like. That's not the same as dysregulation. That's just your body isn't living up to your expectations. There's a huge, huge difference there. I don't know how many people have brought me blood work and they're like, look, see, my testosterone's on the low side of the normal. And I'm like, yeah, you look 
kind of the low side of normal. Like I, I think that's very, <laughs> I think that's very appropriate. I don't, I don't, I, I, I know, I know that's a little bit of a dick thing to say, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing the gears mesh in here, buddy. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> so I think that to answer the or sort of not answer the question you asked is, I think the problem there is really just a, a, a lack of common language. I don't think there is a lot of physical damage to these individuals. I think there's just a lot of really bad behaviors that have led to less than ideal outcomes. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And, and so I guess kind of speaking to dysregulation or potential for dysregulation, um, chronobiology is something that's kind of come up recently and it's gained a lot of popularity. Uh, I just had Danny, Danny Lennon on here a little mm. while ago and we had a really great chat after the podcast actually about chrononutrition and uh, things that were related to the whole diurnal cycle and things like that. Mm -hmm. So can you, can you kind of elaborate um, or speak to how sleep and sleep cycles impact uh, hormone levels and how that might impact performance as a result and potentially even like you know, diet regulation, things like that? Well, once again, I have to start with a, a uh, kind of a, a rider in that mm -hmm. you're, you're talking to probably one of the very few elite world-class insomniacs. So me talking about sleep is kind of comical. Yeah. But because of my lifelong problems with sleep and my background in biology, I, I actually understand the mechanics and I can talk about it, but I can't do any of it. So just know that. So this is, this is do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> as I walk around at you know 4:30 in the morning, you know, with a cup of coffee and one sock flopping as I pace in circles, um, sleep. Well, even sleep aside, almost every aspect of the body is predicated on antagonistic feedback loops. Almost everything we have. You, for instance, we were talking about the insulin and the diabetes. Insulin's the thing everybody dials into. Insulin, 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 blood sugar regulation, insulin. But the reality is there's a concert of hormones, both regulatory insulin and counter-regulatory glucagon, lipase, growth hormone. And they're constantly in this, this one goes up, and so this one goes up to counter it. And there's this constant dance to try and maintain a relatively even value. But that relatively even value is a wild series of reactions and overreactions on either side, kind of like political parties, literally. You know, every time this one does something, the other one must do something to counter it. And the reality is the end result is, is a pretty even populace and law and et cetera. So biology is the same way, very much. And sleep is literally the antagonist to wake, seems obvious, but yet it's not. All of the things, for instance, during awake, you're relatively sympathetic. You are alert, active, spending energy. You, you are metabolically very positive and sympathetic. And then by sleep, you're exactly all of the opposite of those. Any food you've eaten is going purely to restorative methods. You're not burning energy or asleep. You have very low uh, you know, adrenaline or epinephrine, all those things. So you're parasympathetic. So just from a night, day, literally sun, moon, counterbalance one another. And anyone who's ever balanced a checkbook knows that, you know, money in, money out has to be relatively even or you're headed for doom. Sleep is exactly the same way. For all of the sympathetic activity by day, you need maybe not an equal amount, but you need an amount of parasympathetic equivalence 
to basically balance the checkbook. That balance the checkbook is a very broad euphemism for all of the things you're thinking about, testosterone, estrogen, uh, allowing the digestive tract a moment of respite to recover and, I don't like the word, but balance. Um, the, literally, the liver, uh, most of the regenerative properties that take place in the liver, the activation of C cells, and the basically the liver runs a, uh, basically like a rinse cycle, but only during sleep. So once again, lack of sleep, that interrupts that, and you get an ever, not, not enormous, but you get an ever slowly ticking negative balance in regards to that particular function. Mm -hmm. allow that to run unchecked for a very long time, you can literally get disfavorable liver enzymes, hepatic function, et cetera. So all of these things counterbalance one another. And to, to sit here and like just kind of pick apart all the ways, that would be enormous. But the mm -hmm. short answer is everything that's high by day is low by night and vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, even the insulin. Insulin goes up by day because you're eating. You're not eating at night. So insulin tends to suppress, which then allows growth hormone and IGF and those other antagonistic things to slowly elevate, which is why you get the you know grandmother saying to the little kids, like, I think you grew in your sleep. Well, you did, because sleep is one of the few times where you're not interrupting these rapid growth processes mm. as a child. So estrogen in particular gets a pretty negative uh, rep. And, and I think it's kind of like cortisol, right? Where people hear these fancy, you know, buzzwords or they hear that it's associated with A, B, and C. They don't necessarily understand the, the broader scope of, yeah. of what it actually is, how it interacts with the rest of your system uh, or the rest of your systems, I guess. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of guys too even don't necessarily appreciate that estrogen is... is uh, a main driver of, of libido, absolutely, which is, which is kind of ironic if you think about it, uh, it, it given the really, perception. It really is. Um, but estrogen also has, you know, a pretty significant role in in like tissue health and, and connective tissue. Like, can, can you explain 100%. what sort of role it has in in recovery, especially for you know an athlete like a powerlifter who's doing a lot of damage to themselves, you know, given the well, heart. I, I would go once again, and and I, I don't mean to keep doing this to you, but I I think it's appropriate in this and the previous context is I would go, I would go pull the lens back one more and go mm -hmm. one more layer in that um, one of the major, well, there's a couple of major differences between men and women, other than the obvious um, <laughs> women are a little bit smarter than men, I think. And quite obviously women are a bit lighter than men, body weight, body mass, but the women have much lower historical and current incidence of uh, atherosclerosis, myocardial infarction, they have less heart problems across the board. One of the issues there is body weight for sure, but the number one issue there is women have better estrogen-androgen ratios, i.e. you know, a smaller gap or more estrogen. They don't actually have more estrogen, which is kind of comical, but the ratio-wise, they, they do. Uh, and that estrogen is very, very cardiac, and uh, uh, vascular preservative. Women have less cardiac incidence because they have better estrogen values. So right out of the gate, any man who's trying to suppress estrogen is literally trying to move themselves toward cardiac problems. So 
yes, all the things you said, it's good for anabolism, it's good for um, you know, inflammation, it's good for, and we'll talk about all those things in a second, but not dying of a heart attack probably trumps all of those things to some fuck degree. So yeah. I would say let's start there and saying very, very generically, estrogen on a cardiac level, which I think is the base level of life, um, the more you can have without getting into the realms of, of say, feministic side effects. I don't necessarily want you to grow titties, cry and eat chocolate, but all things equal, the more estrogen you can have, probably the healthier you're going to be on a cardiac level. Mm -hmm. No, that makes then a lot of sense. Then we can move into exercise and all the things you said, for instance, uh, talking about the antagonism of things, exercise creates damage and waste products. Estrogen is one of the initial forces that comes in to counterbalance that in terms of local inflammation, clearance of inflammation, and the proper cascade of uh, eicosanoids, arachidonic acid, all the local markers that must be moved through in the proper order for that damage to result in the outcome of tissue remodeling. Estrogen is actually vital in that process. And if you truncate estrogen too low, you literally begin to interrupt that process and you get inadequate and in some cases even moot tissue remodeling. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so uh, I, uh, I would imagine that most of the listeners um, aren't enhanced that, that are, you know, would be tuning in. Um, and so I don't know how relevant this would be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know how relevant this would necessarily be to them, but just out of, I guess, my own, like this is more of a self-serving question that sure. I, I would find kind of interesting is um, kind of following that, that logic. Like, I guess I would sort of assume, and maybe I'm wrong. I would sort of assume that it would be beneficial to take um, like if you're a male or you're a female, it would be beneficial to take both levels potentially as high as possible without seeing, and I guess the cutoff point would roughly be somewhere where it's like, okay, if, if you're a female, you'd like to boost your test to a level where, you know, you're not necessarily seeing all these androgenic outcomes and then estrogen, same thing. You're growing your, your estrogen reserves until you kind of like, just before you kind of develop like bitch tits basically. <laughs> Quite honestly, you know, and, and this, this, this varies de depending. Um, yeah. I kind of, not kind of, I blatantly operate uh, with my athletes or my, mm -hmm. you know, the clients that work with me on a risk reward scale. Yeah. So the answers I give are more predicated on how aggressive, much like a, much like a stockbroker would be. They would give right. you a very careful interview as to really where's your risk reward ratio and then design your portfolio accordingly. I, I literally do the same thing. I have athletes that are very conservative and don't want to make major bets on their health. Then I have other athletes who basically don't give one fuck and just want the performance outcomes. So somewhere in that bell curve, what I would say is we're going to move estrogen slowly and inexorably up until we get to whatever your personal threshold is mm -hmm. in terms of risks of feministic side effects, risk of maybe personality yeah. dysfunction, et cetera. And then we're going to do our best based on the values that we're aware of, body fat percentage, you know, drugs or nutrition in, and we're going to try and perform a subtle dance to keep it about there. Um, other athletes, we literally just say full, you know, full on the, 
much like um, you know, much like in the gym, you know, there's only two. You know, Arthur Jones used to say there's only two values you can measure: no effort and a hundred percent effort. He said, when the barbell puts you on your ass, that's failure. When you're standing there looking at the amp bar, that's zero. Everything in the middle is a gas. Those are the only two. There's that approach as well. We just start yeah. driving things up until athlete comes and says, ooh, got a little soreness, got a little – like there's definitely estrogen at work. Then we stop, get a blood test. We go, that number right there, that one. We're going to take it down 10% and we're going to stay there. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's somewhat dependent on – you know, the athletes, you know, like I said, aggression, but ultimately right. what you said is exactly right. We want that value as high as we can reasonably sustain it for every reason, health, mm-hmm. especially in the case of estrogen, health, yeah. performance, and just speeding the entire process of the outcomes we're looking for. Yeah. I, I always find that so interesting. Like one of the things that kind of bugged me um, a lot of the times is when I hear like, um, there's like all these crazy athletes and then it's like, Oh, well that guy's not a good coach because you know, he takes drugs. And I'm like, it doesn't really change much. Like I'm not, not saying the drugs don't change much, but it's like, it doesn't really change your approach. Like your approach is going to be the exact same. It's like the only difference really is you can do a little bit more of what you were doing natural. And that's, that's really it. It's like you were 100%. You train a little harder. I always use the analogy and it's funny because I'm, I'm super, not a car guy. I don't even know much of anything about cars, but Americans are very car minded, automobile minded. So it works good in explanation, but I I view it very much like driving race cars. No one learns to drive a race car. Like you don't go from being 15 years old to jumping in a race car. And that's the first pedals and wheel you touch. You drive the family car and then you soup up the family car to a hot rod and then you buy a faster car and then if you're good enough at each of those steps you eventually get singled out and go you you might be good in a race car and then they put you in a race car i see the progression of learning to lift weights becoming an athlete becoming a natural athlete and progressing into an unnatural athlete in exactly the same series of events nobody just gets buys drugs before they buy a gym membership like that, that just it's just insane to think that it's a progression and the progression should come with a progressive learning curve and your skills develop much like your ability to drive faster and faster. I really like that analogy actually, because it, it makes a lot of sense. It was funny actually, because I, I used to work at Gold's. I was a coach at Gold's gym for, for a while there. And uh, this is several years ago. And I remember I was like, so naive, I guess as to how many, that's a thing. <laughs> how many people were doing drugs because like I'd have people coming up to me and they're like yeah like this is several years ago and I had people coming up to me and they're like what are you on and like I was a pretty big dude back then I was like 265 something like that and uh and I was like oh like I just am taking like protein and and you know I'm, I told them what I was doing right and they were like no no but like what's your stack and I'm like and I, I knew nothing about this shit back then. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I remember like learning how many people were actually on drugs at the gym and it was everyone. And the, the number one thing that I was shocked with was I was like, you all look like shit. Like you all look like shit. And they were taking crazy stuff and they're like, what should I do? And I was like, dude, don't ask me. I was like, first of all, you should probably go and find like an actual professional to regulate that stuff because that is, that is sketchy stuff. You know, like I definitely wouldn't do that without supervision. And, and, uh, 
yeah and i was i was really surprised at how many people actually did that stuff but anyways it's neither here nor there it's just kind of like that is a that is a topic that either fascinates people or offends them deeply you know when you yeah. allude to the fact that their favorite whatever is actually not uh, as pristine as you might you know, as they might presume yeah yeah it's, it's <laughs> i don't know it is what it is <laughs> but uh so one one thing I know a lot of people are kind of worried about is uh, you know getting older. You hear a lot <clears throat> a lot of people being like, oh well, uh, I'm older. I'm in my 30s. I'm in my 40s. You know, it's not as easy to lose weight or you can't get strong. And like you know, just wait till you're my age. And I've always kind of been like, mm, yeah, most most of that's bullshit. You know, as far as like the training, the strength adaptation, all yeah. stuff, especially for strength because you can get hella strong. You know, into your probably early 40s. Um, I, I would I would venture to say probably a decade beyond that. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there's definitely a couple individuals. I know there was one guy who's like hit some all time records when he was like 52 or something like that. And I was like, Jesus. Fred Atfield was the lightest man to squat a thousand pounds in his very late. I think it was 48, his late forties. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Um, that guy's on another world. Um, but anyways, what, what, what kind of, at what point do we really start to see a down regulation of some of these values and, and is it even a meaningful amount and is there, I guess, and on top of that, is there anything we can do to kind of combat that, that slowed rate? Well, here, if, wow, boy, this is where you and your listeners are probably not going to like the things I have to say. Again, I'm going to wave my little, you know, uh, pedigree flag and say, keep in mind, I am a biologist. So there is a very deep conflict between what I know to be correct and what I do for a living and do to myself. I really want people to understand that, that this is very much a, you know, do as I say, not as I do thing. I just, for all full mm -hmm. disclosure, you know, I, just because I'm post-competitive does not mean I'm post-pharmacologically enhanced. I'm still an enhanced, mm -hmm. I, almost, I almost said athlete, but I'm not particularly athletic at this point in my career, but I'm just, a, now I'm an enhanced person. So, right. But what I'm getting, what I'm getting at is in modern times, the low T scourge, what have you, has accelerated much like diabetes has. And most of it has accelerated because of the comforts and nature of Western society. We have gobs and gobs of food. We have very climate controlled homes. We don't have particularly physically demanding jobs. So those are behavioral traits that allow for a softer, easier life. These hormones counter-regulate the, the difficulty of life, mm -hmm. which is why people that tend to lift weights and be active and what have you tend to have better values later in life. But it's no different than if they just lived in the wild. Now, they, you know, there's other health concerns living in the wild that tend to cause shortened lifespan. But what I'm getting at is this. This tendency or, or scourge toward low T is biology literally doing exactly what it's supposed to do? The information being input into the computer is that life is not that difficult. Things are not that hard. Having a lot of muscle isn't that valuable. And so the body is prioritizing other things. And you know, muscle mass and those sort of things are being deprioritized because that's the information the body's being given. It's a responsive device. Secondly, all of that aside, the tendency toward lower and lower testosterone levels as males age is in fact, again, exactly what's supposed to happen in nature. As you age, 
just like your, literally, again, going back to the analogy of an automobile, just like your automobile, as you put miles on your automobile, all of the parts begin to wear. The, you know, again, I don't know a lot about parts, but you know, the, 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 the water pump and the bearings and the, this thing and everything's systemically wearing down, okay? In the case of an automobile, there's not a lot you could do with that. You just keep driving it until something breaks and you replace it. However, in a biological system, this is how beautiful and elegant and clever nature is. Nature realized as you're putting miles on this machine, it's wearing out. But one of the things nature can do is lower the burden. Imagine if every year you drove your automobile, your automobile got a little bit lighter, lost a little bit of mass. Well, it would be easier to accelerate it and easier to slow it and a little less taxing on parts. So this tendency toward lower and lower ambient sex hormone levels is actually nature's way of moderating against the wear and tear of long life. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, compounded with laziness, which is what we have today, it's accelerated a little faster than maybe nature intended it. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to point out is, once again, this is very natural, consequential type stuff taking place. And we have the ability to identify the bits we want and the bits we don't want and adjust. We can combat normal natural hormonal aging with activity, slightly higher calorie diets, lower fat diets, et cetera, to exacerbate sex hormone values, to insulin values, what have you. But ultimately what I'm getting at is um, the body's designed to get smaller as one gets older. It's basically a bell curve of, you know, peak body weight at about 30 and then, you know, diminished body weight on the backside toward 50, 60 would, you know, typically in the wild people expired. Right. No, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I think, uh, I think a lot of the times the, the negatives can be overplayed. Well, I think the positives and the negatives can kind of be overplayed, but almost 100% on the positives in, uh, <laughs> in, in almost in like a kind of a bad way, you know, it's like, like we were saying earlier, fasting increases IG and uh, growth hormone and things like that. And it's like, well, it's more so to stop you from dying than it is to get you jacked. But, you know, 100 percent, whatever. Um, you know, and that's that's one of the things you know, people come to me with these, you know, just very uh, inflated and conflated ideas about, you know, HRT or TRT. And they say, well, you know, what's the health risk? I'm like, body weight, the, the number one killer of humans outside of religion and government is fucking body weight. <laughs> it's, that's what it is. You know, whether it's yeah. obesity or muscle, at the end of the day, your heart, liver, lungs has to carry that shit around. So if your body's trying to desize to accommodate age and you're inserting a drug to preserve size and body weight, yeah, you feel better. and Yeah, you have more sex drive and you're having more sex, but you're having it at the expense of an exaggerated body weight, which will have consequences. I didn't say it's going to impact quality of life, but I guarantee you it's impacting quantity of life. Mm -hmm. No, and that, that's fair. So we're coming up to that hour mark, and so I want to be respectful of your time. Um, just one more question. Sure. Uh, what, what's, what's one belief that you have that maybe either goes against the grain a little bit or uh, is something that isn't necessarily really understood in the scientific community, or it's not necessarily validated, but it's still something that, you know, through your experience as, as a, you know, consultant and, and a coach, um, 
you believe enough to, to kind of put your, your name on it and say, you know what, I, I believe in this enough to, to kind of put my stamp of approval on it. Yeah. And, and you, you, you kind of, um, I'm giving, giving away the, the ranch here, but you, you alerted me to this question before we went on air and I've been puzzling it around in the back of my head. And I, I'm, I, there's a number of things I want to say here, but this is what I'm going to go with. And there, there are literally a number of things that fit in that category. Um, I hope that like, you know, Dan Duchesne and Fred Hatfield and uh, Arthur Jones, I hope that, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, some of my beliefs will be as validated as theirs were. Uh, I think I'm probably being a bit lofty and putting myself in a category that I don't belong in, but I'll momentarily have that kind of fantasy um, in that, here's where I'm going with that. The science is very, very wishy-washy on the validity of training to very high effort levels, i.e. failure. There are studies that show that it's the only way to muscle growth, and there's studies that show that it's basically the only way to guarantee no muscle growth. I personally put value on very infrequent but systematic trainings to, to failure, and my belief is this. I don't necessarily know that it has any special powers in creating muscle growth. I don't necessarily believe that it has any special powers in stopping muscle growth. But what I do believe is it has a very good uh, value in conditioning your thresholds. It reminds you really where effort is and really where the edge of your abilities are. And I see it as, um, um, Kind of a, one of the remarks that was made to me by a doctor is that, you know, pain is there to remind you what not to do. Mm -hmm. I think failure is a great tool to just to remind you where the edge of things are. You know, don't sail off the edge of the map. Well, that's a great advice, but tell me where the edge of the map is. I think every once in a while you would need to go to the edge of the map and go, oh, fuck, okay, that, don't go there. Got it. Go, you know, and yeah. take a couple steps back. So I, I believe that training to failure infrequently but systematically has very very high validity you know i i actually honestly agree and pretty much for the exact same reasons um when i'm usually explaining this to people that's one of the things that that i use to kind of uh as, as my example um one thing that i've actually done as well with with some of my athletes is i'll get them to do failure training on like accessory work mm -hmm. it's just like you know so like rows or like biceps or skull crushers or something like that where it's like i don't care how much you're lifting you're not going to tax your arms to the point where you can't squat the next day you know like agreed and and so i feel like when you do that and you're like oh my god this is horrendous you're like mm, i don't know if i'm pushing my deadlifts that hard anymore you know <laughs> and and so i'll use it sometimes in that way not necessarily in, in the squats although i definitely do see some value in doing it that way as well um like you said less frequently but yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with with uh, with that specifically for the reason of like knowing where those thresholds are, because yeah. I don't think a lot of people go there. Like you know the whole no. talk about the non-responders thing. Um, and first off, I think most people don't actually understand that the actual definition of what a non-responder is. I think it's just someone who they believe can't get gains. Period, um, which isn't the case. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I, I think in a lot of cases, I've I've. I've just, I've never seen someone who's like, oh man, I just, I've tried everything. I can't get results. And then I work with them and I really push them. I've never seen someone not get stronger and build muscle. Like never. 
You know, agreed, agreed. If, like, if they're if they're not dead, they're going to get some progress. Yeah, like you know, definitely you're going to get the guys who don't make as much progress. But at the same time, I think that like I'm definitely of the camp, and I think I'm probably a little bit rare in this. Where I definitely believe that every single person out there can get pretty strong and pretty jacked. Like you know, obviously not Olympia level and things like that, but. Wherever you start out, you can get a whole lot better than where you are if you just really work hard and you know where those thresholds yeah, are and I mean, push them. You know, I name dropped earlier, going going back to Arthur Jones. You know, Arthur Jones yeah. pretty publicly in his you know publications and what have you said that pretty much every human being has the potential to be about two hundred percent stronger than they currently are yeah. in an untrained condition. And I and I believe that. Now the difference is. You know, if you are absolutely piss weak, 200% stronger is not that impressive. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I get that. But it's still 200%. Yeah, yeah, no, agreed. So, Broderick, where, where can the listeners find you uh, if, if they're looking to either find more information about you, looking to maybe get some consulting, something like that, or just kind of, uh, you know, look into more, more what you're doing? Sure. Um, two answers. And the, the one I'm actually going to impart it as uh, advice because it was one of the few moments in my life where I wasn't an asshole and I actually absorbed good business advice. <laughs> All of my stuff, my web domain, my Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, everything is the same. And it is team evil GSP. My business is evil genius sports performance. So everything, my website is team evil Facebook, Team Evil GSP, everything. So those of you out there who have any interest potentially in business, one of the most beautiful favors you can ever do yourself is take the advice that I was clever enough to actually absorb for once and do that. It makes finding you and being found and what have you so much more elegant. So Team Evil GSP, any platform that I'm on, that's the name in which I'm there. And then I have a members-only website uh, that I cover specifically and exclusively the performance enhancing side of things. Uh, and that is members.teamevilgsp.com. That's awesome. me. So all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes. You guys definitely check it out. Follow him on Instagram. He's got some really, really interesting talks. Even if you're not necessarily enhanced, like it's just interesting as hell. And uh, it's, it's definitely worth it to go and check him out. Um, well, Broderick, thanks so much for, for joining us. It was awesome to chat, learned a lot. And uh, I'm sure the listeners uh, learned, learned a lot as well. Beautiful. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly. So make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.